0: I'd like to, to welcome you guys here. If, if it's your first time visiting with us, we're so happy that uh, you've joined us uh, here at Redwood. We're just a group of people who are trying to be like Jesus every day, trying to walk a little bit more like Jesus and, and walk a little closer to Jesus and get to know him more and more. And uh, We like to say around here that our mission is to help people say yes to their next step, whatever that might be. And so uh, we're happy that you've taken the step to be here with us and, and to worship uh, with us here today. We're gonna wrap up our series uh, crazy normal today. We've been looking at some dysfunctional families through the book of Genesis. And uh, the last couple of weeks, we've kind of been in the line of, of Abraham. And so uh, we're going to jump ahead and, and look at the next generation that he has. And uh, we're going to kind of just dive bomb some parts of scripture today, but we're eventually going to camp out a little bit in Genesis 45. Uh, but as you get there, uh, and, and if you're unfamiliar, I, I take this for granted sometimes. If you're unfamiliar... Genesis is the beginning of your Bible, so just start at the beginning and flip a few pages into it. I I take that for granted sometimes because uh, I I got taught the books of the Bible song when I was a kid, and um, I'll still be in church sometime, and they'll say, turn to this book, in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and you you go all the way through it. so if you didn't get taught that song, Genesis is at the very beginning, but as you're kind of turning there, let's just kind of, kind of bring the story up to speed here. We, we talked last week about Isaac and Rebekah, and about their sons Jacob and Esau, and kind of how their family dynamic was, was odd. And specifically, those two really kind of, they played favorites with their, their, their kids. Isaac had Esau, Rebekah had Jacob, and they kind of set them up for, for failure, and in the end of the story, Jacob swindles Esau out of his birthright, out of his inheritance. You read on a couple of chapters later, and, and with the help of his mother, Rebekah, Jacob actually goes in and tricks his father into getting the, the formal blessing <clears throat> so that he can become the, the official heir to the family. Well, you read on the story, as Jacob grows up a little bit more, uh, he starts kind of getting some comeuppance. And... and uh, I kind of like it because Jacob's kind of a rat in my mind, but but uh, you know he, somehow he, he winds up becoming this is one God really picks, but shows you he can, God can work with anybody, right? And, and of all people, God's called the God of Jacob more than anybody else, which I'm just like, man, really? Jacob of all people? But, but he's the God of Jacob. So, as Jacob moves on in his story, he, he goes to find a wife and he finds this woman named Rachel. And Rachel's beautiful and he falls in love with her and he wants to marry her. And so he talks to her father Laban and Laban says, You work for me for seven years, you can have Rachel. And, and so he does. And, and the Bible says that those seven years flew by, like a couple of days, because he was so in love with Rachel. But Laban pulls the old bait and switch on him, and somehow, I haven't really figured this out, somehow Jacob marries the wrong sister, and he doesn't realize it until the next day. And it's not Rachel, it's her older sister Leah, her older, less attractive sister Leah. Uh, in fact, I'm pretty sure the, the Bible said she had poor eyes. That's a nice way of saying she was ugly. That's, that's a nice Bible way of saying that. And, and Laban's like, yeah, oh, oh yeah, you got to marry Leah first. He didn't tell him that seven years before. But you work for me for seven more years and you can have Rachel. You can marry him both. So that's what happens. Now, ladies, I want you to put yourselves in, in, in their shoes here. Let's, let's pretend for a second that we live in a culture and a society where a husband having multiple wives is not only legal, but it's acceptable. That's what it was here. Okay, just, just kind of put that in your mind for a second. Think about the, kind of the jealousy in your heart it's just going to naturally come when you know you're fighting for your husband's attention and affection. That's what's happening here. Now let's let's amplify that a little bit. You're not only fighting for attention, you're fighting with your sister for attention. In particular maybe your sister who always got more attention than you did. That's kind of the Leah and Rachel dynamic here. Uh, Rachel is Leah's or I'm sorry, Rachel is Jacob's preferred wife. That was who he chose. But Leah's technically his first wife. So they get married, and we don't know necessarily a lot about, about these sisters. What we do know about Rachel is that when Jacob is with Rachel, just like his mother Rebecca and just like his grandmother Sarah, she has difficulty getting pregnant. I'm not sure what it is with the wives in this line, but they all have difficulty getting pregnant. Leah, on the other hand, the story, it almost kind of props her up like she's going to be uh, the bad guy, so to speak, but she's very faithful to God. And God is very faithful to her, so God opens her womb and she gets pregnant. So, so here's kind of the, the dynamic here. In her mind, she's probably deserving to be the chosen wife. She's the older sister, she is, it's by job to get first. Rachel's the, the actual chosen wife. But Leah not only gets pregnant, but she produces four sons. Reuben, Simeon, um, Judah, and I lost my other one here, uh, Levi. Levi. So, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, in that order. So, four sons. So, Rachel, she does what any woman with common sense would do in this situation. She goes and gets her friend and says, will you sleep with my husband so you can have a son for me? So, that's, that's what happens. She gets one of her servants, comes in, gives her servant to Jacob. Jacob sleeps with her, and this apparently goes on for a while because she produces two sons, uh, Leah at this time has kind of moved past the age of childbearing, so she's not having any more kids. So she sees now Jacob's got four sons with her, now two sons through Rachel's servant. So Leah does what any woman with common sense would do in this situation. She goes and gets her servant to come in and sleep with her husband. And there's two more sons that get produced. We're up to eight now. And none of them belong to Rachel. And one of Leah's sons, Reuben, is out picking fruit, and Rachel wants some of it, so she makes her a deal. Hey, if you give me some of this fruit that your son picked, you can go back and sleep with Jacob some more. So this happens, and now there's, this is in the Bible, folks. I mean, I'm not making this story up. I think if I was making this story up, it wouldn't even be believable, right? Leah has two more. We're up to ten sons. Now, I don't know how many daughters are born here. The Bible tells us about one. There's a a daughter named Dinah that's born in the midst of this. So so it's possible all of these women had daughters. But in this lineage, in this time frame, sons are what's important. And Rachel hasn't had one. But there's ten sons that have been born. And finally, I don't know how many years have passed here, but finally, Genesis 29, uh, the Bible says that God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and he opened her womb. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And I I apologize, my computer fought me all this morning, so we don't have slides up here, so you're going to have to take my word for it today. Um, So I'll I'll repeat a few spots here and there. So they have have Joseph, Joseph's number 11 out of all the sons. Okay, let's fast forward 17 years to Genesis 37. And and this is kind of where our story is going to pick up a little bit with this. Genesis chapter 37, the, the, the brothers are all out working in the fields. Joseph is 17 years old, and here's where our story uh, kind of picks up. Uh, Genesis 37, verse 3, it says, Now Israel, that's Jacob's new name, he's been renamed as, as Israel. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons, because he was the son of his old age. I, I think, too, part of the, the reason I gave you that whole background story, he was also the son of his chosen wife. He was the son of Rachel. He was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all the brothers, they hated him and they could not speak peacefully to him. I don't know kind of how we got to this situation because you would think Jacob, of all people, would know better. I mean, he saw this in his own upbringing, right? Again, two brothers here, Jacob and Esau. The parents played favorites. They kind of pitted the brothers against each other sometimes. So you would think that he would know know better. But not only does he repeat the pattern of his parents, he actually does it even worse than his parents did. Because he's got 10 other sons, and actually at some point here he gets a 12th, and he handpicks one. And this one is his favorite. And it's this one kid that he, he tells everybody else, hey, he's a straight-A student. He's a student council president, honor roll. He's got scholarships to, to Harvard. I mean, this is, this is the best kid you could ever hope to have. Buys him the nicest clothes. The brothers just kind of get whatever. Man, if you're the older brothers, and you're looking at this, and you're like, really? You're picking this kid? We, there's 10 of us. We're, we're all pretty good guys, you know? And, and you picked him? Those 10 other brothers very understandably get pretty resentful. I don't know what kind of attitude Joseph had, but if he's like a lot of other uh, teenagers in our day and time, especially the ones who get propped up, he might have developed a little bit of an attitude, might have been a little cocky, might have let it go to his head a little bit, might have showed their brothers, hey, check out this new coat dad just bought me, it's pretty awesome, right? Look what you guys are wearing. I don't know. It's possible, we're just totally speculating here, but whatever the case is, his brothers don't like it, and they get so resentful that here in this passage in Genesis 37, they're ready to kill him. I mean, they're pushed to the point, they're ready to get rid of him and kill him, and it's Reuben, the oldest brother, who steps in and says, no, we're not going to kill him, let's just throw him in this well instead. And then Judah, one of the older of the, of the uh, oldest brothers, says, actually, let's, let's sell him. Let's sell him to these these people who are passing by. And so that's what they do. They sell him to this group of merchants that are passing by, and they take him into Egypt and sell him into slavery. And that's where the story really takes off. And really, if it wasn't in the Bible, again, it would be hard to believe, because here's this slave who gets sold, and he gets sold in Egypt to this guy named Potiphar, who is a, a servant of Pharaoh. And Potiphar's a powerful person. But Joseph gets sold there, and, and what's amazing about Joseph is he impresses, even though he's sold in the slavery, he impresses Potiphar so much that Potiphar elevates him. You're over my whole house. You're in charge of my whole household. And so he's got free access to everything, and it's not very long into this time that Joseph gets accused of something that he didn't do. He gets accused of trying to rape Potiphar's wife because she came on to him, and he didn't want any part of it. And so she accuses him of this, so he gets thrown in prison unjustly, and, and now he's at the, like the lowest of lows. He's in a, in a prison cell. And while he's there, he impresses two people who work for Pharaoh, and he gets Pharaoh's attention, so Pharaoh comes to him and he impresses Pharaoh, and now he gets pulled out of prison and gets put in place of power. Basically, gets appointed prime minister over all of Egypt. There's Pharaoh and there's Joseph, but Pharaoh's basically like, hey, I'm gonna get out of the way, you run the show. That's kind of where we're at, <laughs> He's gone from being sold into slavery, now 13 years later, he's one of the most powerful men in the entire world. And that's our story. And here's kind of what this boils down to. In all of his trials, in all of his obstacles, in everything that came his way, Joseph never lost his focus on God. Never did. And he never got to the point where he felt like he was abandoned and rejected and left. He understood something that I think we struggle with way too often. And it's this, that God's plan for our lives, it goes beyond what our current frustrations allow us to see. His plan for our lives, it goes beyond what our current hurt and frustration can't allow us to see. Later on in the story, uh, famine sets in across the land, and Joseph's brothers wind up coming to Egypt, and they need help. And they have to come to him, of all people, for help, but they don't realize it's him. And, and, and eventually he reveals himself, I'm Joseph, I'm your brother, the one you rejected, the one you sold, and they are terrified. Because now not only does he possibly want revenge, he's one of the most powerful men in the world. He can do anything he wants to them and get away with it. And what's his response? He opens up his arms and he welcomes them in and he loves them and he helps them. He forgives them. I can't imagine that. I can't imagine Joseph forgiving them in this situation. I sometimes have a difficult time forgiving people who have said something bad about me. That's kind of how petty I am. Yeah, I, 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 I. I. this will sound bad. I still think back to being in high school. And my, my, my senior year, my, my coach coming to me, and, and, and I, was, I was ready to quit. I was frustrated. And he's like, no, you're an integral part of this team. We need you here. Your leadership's great. I'm like, okay, I'll stick it out. And the rest of the year, underclassmen treated me like junk, and he did nothing to support me. He's like, well, you haven't earned it. I'm like, why'd what, you just tell me that? What, what, you don't tell somebody that who's 18 and then not back him up on it. And I still cling to that. I, I still have that in the back of my mind, and, and it's something that I've had a hard time letting go of. And even though I've, I've kind of reconciled with the coach, I've never forgotten that. Now Joseph's had a whole lot worse than that happen to him, and he's let it go. He's moved on. He, he's, he's been able to overcome abandonment and rejection. So I'm going to do what we've done in the last couple of weeks and just take a couple of observations out of the story. See, and this is a big chunk of Scripture. It's several chapters long. We could, I mean, I, I've seen churches do entire series simply on this, this line of Joseph here. But I just want to look at a couple of, of observations because this is such a remarkable ability that Joseph has how he can forgive his brothers, forgive his family in the midst of all of this. Here's first observation. Your perspective of your past determines the direction of your future. The perspective of your past determines the direction of your future. Notice one thing about Joseph here. And I would challenge you this week, if you want to get this a little deeper, Set and read Genesis 37 through 45. It's, it's a lot of scripture, and there's a couple chapters that kind of pull out of the main storyline, but just read that story. Thirty-seven is where Joseph gets sold into slavery, 45 is where he reveals himself to his brothers. But just read that passage, and here's what you're going to see when you read this. Never once does Joseph play the victim card. Never once does he play the victim card in, in all of this. Everything that's happened to him, in a lot of ways, we can relate to. We can relate to rejection. We can relate to abandonment. We can relate to being accused of something or having something bad said about us. And what do we do typically when that happens? We point fingers. Well, I'm, I'm bad about that sometimes. Something bad happens, I'm a part of, like, well, that wasn't really my fault. It was this person's fault. You know, or, or we, some people, sometimes we throw people under the bus. Some people, we, we, we just, we blame others. Why? Because we want people to feel sorry for us. We want people to take pity on us and take our side in an argument. That's what we do here. But Joseph never does. He focuses on God. And because he focuses on God, God stays with him and God blesses him. So how are some ways that we can do that? How can we keep a positive perspective in the midst of trials? Here's just a few ways. Number one, don't blame other people. Joseph never once in his story says, Well, I'm only here because my brothers were jerks and abandoned me. Never once says, I'm in this prison because Potiphar's wife, she, wanted, she couldn't have me, she wanted me, and then she made up false accusations. Never says that. He never blames other people. He just keeps looking forward. He keeps looking at, at where he's going, not how he got where he is and who got him there. Number two, show gratitude. Show gratitude. Even in the midst of trials, show your gratitude. One of my favorite parts of this story is, is in Genesis 41. He's out of prison, he's working for Pharaoh, he's he's the number two guy now. Pharaoh's giving him everything. He's got a wife, he's got property, he's got land. And with his wife, they have two sons, and I love what they name their two sons. The first one they name Manasseh, which means God helps me forget. The second one, they name Ephraim, which means God has made me fruitful. So his two sons, God's helped me forget, and God's made me fruitful. He's giving credit to God. He's showing his gratitude for what God has allowed in his life and allowed him to do. He was grateful even in the midst of heartache and trial. Number three, you can show compassion. That's one way to help keep a positive perspective. You can show compassion. This is what gets Pharaoh's attention here. Because Joseph is in prison. He's at rock bottom, the lowest of lows. And what's he doing? He's developing a plan to help other people. He's not trying to think about how I can get myself out of this mess. He's like, hey, there's some problems coming in. Here's how we should take care of the situation. And he, so he's, he's showing compassion. He's helping others. He's serving others even while he's at rock bottom. And number four, you take responsibility. Joseph, again, never sat around. He never felt sorry for himself. He doesn't play the woe is me card. And if anybody has ever deserved to play it, it was Joseph. Because nothing that, was, that happened to him that was bad was because of what he did. Everything that he did that the Bible records is, is righteous, it's on par. Uh, he, he, he's doing the right things, so he never plays that card. He makes the most of every chance he gets. When he goes to work for Potiphar, he works his tail off and he gets promoted. Then he gets in prison and he starts helping people in prison. He gets the attention of Pharaoh. Man, he's made prime minister. And Man, he just, he never misses the opportunity to work. He takes responsibility for everything he does. So the first observation here. Your perspective of your past determines the direction of your future. Second observation is this. Reconciliation only starts when you submit yourself to God. What I love about reading through his story, the common theme here, is you see time and time again him just tie things back to God. Uh, whether it's when Potiphar's wife approaches him, this is in Genesis 39, Potiphar's wife approaches him and, and uh you know, says, says let's, let's, let's hook up. And he's like, no, this is a sin against God. He's quickly pulling it back to God when he's in prison and, and they want their dreams interpreted. He's like, well, God's interpretation says this. He's, he's giving all the credit to God. He's fully submitting himself to God in all of this. It would have been very easy for Joseph to take a stance that we might take and to think, you know what? God's forgotten me. He's abandoned me because my family kicked me out. They don't want me anymore. So where's God in all this? I'm just looking out for me. And I've seen this happen with people. Their faith gets rocked, and they, they lose their faith because something similar happens, something terrible happens in their lives, and they, they come up with this to this attitude of God wasn't here, if God was loving, if God was real, this would have never happened. But Joseph doesn't do that. You might have heard the story of uh, Cory Tenboom. Uh, she was a Dutch watchmaker in, in the Netherlands during World War II when Germany invaded her country. So her family, uh, they, they start this, this network of, of helping Jews escape the Nazi regime, and eventually they're captured by the Nazis, and her father dies in, in, in uh, prison a couple of days later, and before long, her and her sister Betsy are sent to Ravensbrück concentration camp, and it's in Ravensbrück that her sister starts getting sick, and just her, her health fades away, and as her health is fading, all she does is talk about the future. And she tells Corey, man, when we get out of here, I want to start a a place that helps people heal. And Corey's like, come on. And I love this because Betsy had this great quote. She said, there's no pit so deep that God is not deeper still. There's no pit so deep he's not deeper still. Betsy died a few days later. And about a week after she died, Corey gets released by accident. It was a clerical error that let her out. And within a week of her release, all the women in her age group were sent to the gas chambers. So by God's mercy, by God's grace, miracle, she's out. Once she's released, once the war's over, she set up a rehabilitation center back in the Netherlands for those who had survived the Holocaust, those who were learning to help heal. And, and already, she was already a, a believer, but her faith deepened and strengthened. And, and what I loved about her story... Was well, she went back into post-war Germany preaching a message of forgiveness and healing. And one night she had this encounter, and I'm just going to read what she wrote. These are her words. It was in a church in Munich that I saw him. A balding, heavy-set, heavyset uh, man in a gray overcoat and a brown felt hat clutched between his hands. People were filing out of the basement room where I had just spoken, moving along the rows of wooden chairs to the door at the rear. It was 1947, and I had come from Holland to defeated Germany, with the message that God forgives. It was the truth they needed most to hear in that bitter, bombed out land, and I gave them my favorite mental picture. Because the sea is never far from a Hollander's mind, I like to think that's where forgiven sins were thrown. When we confess our sins, I said, God cast them into the deepest ocean, gone forever. The solemn faces stared back at me, not quite daring to believe. There were never questions after a talk in Germany in 1947. People stood up in silence, in silence collected their wraps, and in silence left the room. And that's when I saw him, working his way forward against the others. One moment I saw the overcoat and the brown hat, the next a blue uniform and a visored cap with its skull and crossbones. And it came back with a rush. The huge room with its harsh overhead lights, the pathetic pile of dresses and shoes in the center of the floor, the shame of walking naked past this man. I could see my sister's frail form ahead of me, her ribs sharp beneath the parchment skin. Oh, Betsy, how thin you were. Betsy and I had been arrested for concealing Jews in our home during the Nazi occupation of Holland. And this man had been a guard at Ravensbruck concentration camp where we were sent. Now he was in front of me, his hand thrust out. A fine message, Fraulein, how good it is uh, to know that, as you say, all our sins are at the bottom of the sea." And I, who had just spoken so glibly of forgiveness, fumbled in my pocketbook rather than take his hand. He would not remember me, of course. How could he remember one prisoner among the thousands of women? But I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. It was the first time since my release that I had been face to face with one of my captors, and my blood seemed to freeze. You mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk, he was saying. I was a guard there. No, he definitely did not remember me. But since that time, he went on, I've become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there, but I would like to hear it from your lips as well, Fräulein. And again the hand came out, will you forgive me? And I stood there. I, whose sins had every day to be forgiven, I could not. Betsy died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply by asking? It could not have been many seconds that he stood there, his hand held out. But to me, it seemed like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I ever had to do. But I had to do it. I knew that. The message that God forgives has a prior condition, that we forgive those who have injured us. If you do not forgive men their trespasses, Jesus says, neither will your Father in heaven forgive your trespasses. I knew it not only as a commandment of God, but as a daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. Those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to also return to the outside world and rebuild their lives no matter the physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and as horrible as that. And I stood there with the coldness clutching my heart. But forgiveness, I love this, forgiveness is not an emotion. I knew that. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Jesus, help me, I prayed silently. I can lift my hand, I can do that much, but you have to supply the feeling. And so, woodenly and mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder it raced down my arm and it sprang into our joined hands and then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being tears coming to my eyes I forgive you brother I cried I forgive you with all my heart For a long moment we grasped each other's hands the former guard and the former prisoner I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then And having thus learned to forgive in the hardest of situations, I never again had difficulty in forgiving. I wish I could say this. I wish I could say that merciful and charitable thoughts just naturally flowed from me from then on, but they didn't. If there's one thing I've learned at 80 years of age, it's that I can't store up good feelings and behavior. I can only draw them fresh from God every day. And reconciliation can only happen when you submit yourself to God. Third observation is this. Forgiveness is a process that takes time and testing, and that's okay. It doesn't have to be the flip of a switch. Forgiveness takes time. You read Joseph's story. There's three chapters from when he sees his brothers to when he reveals himself and forgives them. In those three chapters, he is putting them to the test. See, there's another brother that's born brother named Benjamin, younger than Joseph. The only other brother Joseph has that's born to Rachel. And when Joseph disappears, Benjamin kind of becomes the favorite. And here's kind of where the story takes an interesting little twist here. Benjamin doesn't come with the other ten brothers to Egypt. He stays home with, with, with Jacob. So Joseph says, go get your brother and bring him back here, and then you guys can go back and tell your father. He's putting him to the test. I think he wants to see, do you guys still hold that same bitterness and jealousy in your heart or not? And the brothers say, no, we couldn't do that. We can't do that. We can't do it to our father. They're understanding that they've made mistakes. He's putting them to the test. He wants to see if they've changed here. See, I think too often when it comes to forgiveness, a lot of times we get on one of two extremes. We either put up a wall and refuse to forgive or we do it so quickly we don't give ourselves a chance to heal and we don't test the other person, and we put ourselves out there at risk of getting hurt again immediately, and neither one of those are good. There's not a set time frame on forgiveness, but it's important to remember we have to keep moving toward it. See, if you don't forgive others, or actually, let let me say it this way, you have to ultimately forgive others. Whatever the schedule, whatever the time frame, you have to try and get there, and there's two reasons why. Number one, it's more destructive to hold on to a grudge than it is to let it go. It's more destructive to hold on to a grudge than it is to release it. Nothing positive will come from holding a grudge. It's going to eat away at you. And a lot of times, you're holding a grudge and eating away. It's eating away at you. The other person's forgotten they've even did anything to you. Not hurting them at all. They've moved on. Nelson Mandela was in prison for 25 plus years in South Africa simply because of the color of his skin. And when he's finally released. He said this about about holding a grudge. He said, holding a grudge is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. (laughs) Man, that's exactly right. It's like you're drinking it yourself but expecting it to hurt somebody else. So let go of your grudge. But the second reason you have to forgive is because God forgave you. The New Testament, uh, it'd be fun to kind of go through and, and highlight or underline every time the Bible says this in the New Testament. Because almost every book brings this up. We should forgive because we've been forgiven. I love this great line in Ephesians. Paul says, be kind to one another. Be tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Love that. But then there's some passages where it's flipped around. And kind of like Corey Tinboom said, God's forgiveness to us is conditional that we forgive others. Jesus said it himself, and in Matthew 6, he gives us the Lord's Prayer, and then afterwards, he kind of gives us this little footnote in in Matthew 6, 15. He says, if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. I think, this is just my thought, but here's why I think that's the case. You can't understand the forgiveness God is giving you until you're willing to forgive somebody else. You just can't understand what it is God's doing in your life until you're willing to forgive that other person. Forgiveness, it is hard. I'm not gonna sit up here at all and try to pretend like it's not. It is hard. If you have been hurt, if you've been cut, man, you know that is so hard to heal, and we all heal differently. Just like our physical bodies heal differently, man, our emotional bodies heal differently. And we've all been hurt at some point. I mean, look at Joseph. Look at his life. Look at how he just kept focusing forward and kept his perspective out there. I mean, that's a great way to look at at how we can forgive others. I love how his story wraps up. In Genesis 45, he finally reveals himself to the brothers, and they're terrified. In Genesis 45, verse 5, he says this Do not be distressed. Or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me here before you to preserve life. See his perspective. You guys didn't send me here, God did. There's a reason God sent me here. Verse 6, he says, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep you alive for your many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord over his whole house and the ruler over all of Egypt. Several years later, his whole family has moved to Egypt. Uh, they even bring his dad, uh, Jacob, and now Jacob's dead. Jacob, Jacob gets old, Jacob dies, and the brothers are terrified because they're like, oh, Joseph was just playing nice while dad was alive, but now he's gone. So in, in Genesis 50, he reaffirms him this. This is 17 years after his brothers came to see him he says this in Genesis 50, verse 20. You meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. He meant it to bring about so that many people could be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. And thus he comforted them and he spoke kindly to them. The perspective is so important when it comes to Forgiveness. Regardless of what somebody might have done to you, ask yourself the question, what is God allowing this to do for me moving forward? Keep your focus on the future rather than on the past. Let's pray. Father, this is such a hard topic because we've all faced times when we've been hurt. God, in in hurt and pain, it it all hits us all so differently. But God, I, I know that you asked us to forgive. And God, I know that there's nothing that that anybody has ever done to me that is worse than what I've done to you. Because I've lied to you. I've run away from you. I've rejected you. I've, I've gone against what you've told me to do. I've disobeyed. And yet you've forgiven me. So God, I just ask that you would keep my heart open and receptive to looking to others, to reconciling with others. Because God, again, I know that, that nothing, nobody's ever done anything to me that, that's beyond your love and your reach. God, I'm so thankful that you sent Jesus to die on the cross for me in spite of all that i had done. And you would put my heart, the, the, the willingness and the desire to reach out and to help others, even in spite of my hurt or my pain. God, if anybody here today is, is struggling with forgiveness, is struggling with the pain, is struggling with the hurt, whether it's recent, whether it's an old, deep wound, whatever, God, I just ask you would start touching their heart, touching their mind, touching their spirit, Lord, that they could start focusing on you, start focusing on being with you and not dwelling on what's happened. They could move from a state of anger and and. and, and God, of of hatred and God, of just rejection to a state of love and acceptance and reconciliation. God, I'm so thankful for you, thankful for the cross, thankful for the process and the price that Jesus did and paid and went through so that we could be reconciled to you. God, we love you. We praise you and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.